You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, the show where archaeology and technology come together. This is episode 61, and I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Wait, what? Who the hell is Paul Zimmerman? Find out on today's episode. We'll also talk about recent updates to Apple Maps and the note-taking app Notability in the App of the Day segment. Let's get to it. Okay, welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast. And as I mentioned in the introduction, we've got a new co-host today. But first, I'd like to thank uh, Chris Sims, who was a longtime co-host of this show, and then Richie Cruz, who's a, a local archaeologist and friend of mine. Uh, we do the You Call This Archaeology Show together, which will be um, out on iTunes, hopefully, by the time you guys are hearing this. But otherwise, we record... Um, on live at 3 p.m. Pacific time on Facebook, on the Archaeology Channel Facebook page, Archaeology Podcast Network Facebook page. Anyway, Richie stepped in as co-host for a little while, but I was looking for a new co-host for this show, and I was contacted um, based on mentioning that on the show by Paul Zimmerman. Paul, how's it going? That's pretty good. How you doing? Good, good. So Paul and I have talked a few times, and we talked about what it would mean to, you know, what kind of commitments it would be to come on as a co-host of the show, and, and um, you know, it sounds like it was a, a good fit. So here we are, and we're going to make this first show with Paul, uh, pretty much all about Paul. So uh -oh. it's the it's the all Paul hour. <laughs> um, um, no, I'm scared. I know, I know. And we're going to try to do an app, an app of the day segment at the end there, although I kind of sprung that on Paul. So, um, and, and I'm just going to tell you right now, if you're not an Apple fan, I am going to talk about Apple Maps and not in a good way, but kind of in a good way. So, because I haven't talked about it before and there's some new things going on with it. So anyway, Paul, what the hell's going on with you? So why, why did you choose? Uh, first off, how long have you been listening to the Archaeotech podcast? What kind of familiarity do you have with the show? I've been listening to it for about a year, year and a half, I think, um, nice. as well as some of the other APN podcasts, but that's mm -hmm. the one that I really gravitated to, that one and uh, the Archie Fantasies. Nice, nice. So, so what's, your, what's your interest? At, well, let's, first off, what's your background in archaeology? What, you, um, you know, what, what brings you to this field? Uh, let's say that uh, I'm an interested amateur, but um, I'm an amateur with a PhD in the field. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I mean is I met up with one of my old buddies uh, that I used to do field work with uh, last Christmas time, and, and he described himself as an ex-archaeologist. And I thought, oh, I can't quite call myself that anymore. <laughs> um, I, the ex part doesn't uh, didn't sit right with me. Uh, a couple months later, I ran into one of my uh, my wife's co-workers, who's also an archaeologist, and she said, so what's it like to be a former archaeologist? I thought, <laughs> former? Oh, goodness, that's not right either. Uh, so I was thinking about it, and I, and I think I've chosen the word dormant. I'm dormant, and I'll come back into the field in a big way soon. Um, nice. But in the meantime, I've been keeping abreast of the literature. I uh, teach. I have given lectures. I uh, haven't published anything or done any real field work in quite a while. Um, but mm -hmm. I, uh, I listen to every podcast I can. I read up, um, again, so interested amateur with a PhD. That's, uh, I mean, keeping up on the, the literature and, and listening to podcasts, that's more than I can say about a lot of actual professional archaeologists that are currently doing it. Like, like, I feel like I feel like a lot of people just phone it in, you know, they try to treat it like a nine to five job, especially in in CRM where I'm at. Um, I, I meet people. I've worked with people who and I, I've never had this this idea, which is probably why I feel like I'm. Other people think I'm constantly working like from, you know, they're like, how do you get so much done? They're like, you're working from six in the morning to, you know, 11 o'clock at night. It's like, I, I don't feel like I'm working though. I feel like I'm just doing stuff like it's like is editing a podcast working is is researching an interview working ah eh, i don't know i don't i don't really know if it is or not um so i like that you've you know even though you're not doing archaeology right now you know you you keep up with the field and you and you keep it going and uh and that's fantastic so so what are you doing now uh so for the last 17 years i've been um working in it at an independent school in manhattan uh my current uh job is called systems manager it's been that for a number of years uh, the actual job doesn't really matter so much what i do is a lot of database work a lot of network work uh, a certain amount of programming web presence a lot of break fix you know all sorts of stuff involved with uh with keeping a school running a large school running uh on the tech side mm -hmm. and I got into this because my specialty when I was an active field archaeologist was tech of all sorts. Uh, so it was pretty easy to take one set of skills and adapt them to a different kind of location. 
Um, so that's 17 years here, and uh, it's been 14 years since I've been in the field. Uh, but again, I'm very active, uh, or keeping myself as active as I can uh, with keeping abreast of what's happening in the field. Part of that is that I'm on the board of the local chapter of the AIA and put together their bi-yearly newsletter. And, you know, so I'm in contact with a lot of archaeologists, too, um, for lectures and publications and uh, just as my general circle of friends and, uh, and professional colleagues. Well, that's really cool. Um, I, I really like all that. And, you know, when we talked before, you know, when we were kind of just getting to know each other and set up the show, you mentioned some of the, well, first off, the school that you're at, what, what, what is the age group of the, the kids at school? It's full, all grades, isn't it? Yeah, it's a K through 12. Uh, there are about 100 kids a grade. And okay. I was first introduced to this school back in 1998. And uh, I told you the story, but for the listeners, um, the school had done in the 90s when there was a big push to try to bring computers into the classroom, but nobody really knew in what shape they should take. The school had something called the New Lab for Teaching and Learning. That's the department I work in. Uh, at the time, they were focused on developing software to, to enhance the curriculum. And one of the uh, pieces of software, one of the programs they had, really their centerpiece was for the sixth grade. They had a virtual archaeological excavation of a site called Tel Barsip in Syria, an Assyrian site. And in 1998, I was the tech lead in MASCA, in the, uh, the computer office of, uh, of MASCA, which is the Museum Applied Science Center for Archaeology mm-hmm. at the University of Pennsylvania Museum. I was a grad student there. Um, and Dalton, the school that I'm at, wanted to do a new version of their virtual dig, Archaeotype, uh, using materials from the museum. And so I was brought along at the time as somebody that could speak tech on the one hand to the programmers here at the school, as well as archaeology to the archaeologists back at the museum. Uh, that was 1998. Nothing ever came of that project. But a couple years later, uh, my wife was pregnant with our daughter, our first child, and I needed a real job real fast. So I knew a couple people here at Dalton, and I came in to t- go talk to them to find out what the general lay of the land was for independent schools and people with the tech skills that I had. And um, it turned out that their tech at the time was melting down and they needed somebody <laughs> with my skills. <laughs> so I was pretty much hired on the spot. It was going to be just a couple of years gig while I finished up my PhD, but it got more and more interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've been here for 17 years. I really... Um, I really enjoy it. It keeps me fresh on the tech side, too. Uh, Also, you know, archaeology, you know, I mentioned we have this in the sixth grade. It's not just used in the sixth grade. We also have a a sandbox dig that's done in the third grade. And uh, when I came on here, the person that I went to talk to was the museum liaison uh, for some of the museums that we have here on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And another prominent archaeologist in New York looked and saw that we had one, two, I think about six or seven archaeologists in faculty and staff on the school and said, my goodness, you have more than Columbia does. (laughs) (laughs) So we actually, uh, we use archaeology in a number of different ways in the school um, and often intersected with tech. That's awesome. I I remember um, you telling me about that program, like for third graders and, and, I was like, man, some of that training, it sounds like they're getting is, is better than some of the training we get in college for, for like contract archaeology. I mean, I swear to God, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really awesome to be exposed to it at that young age, I think. Yeah, it really is. It's part of the advantage of being in our location here is that we have got excellent museums right in the neighborhood. So the kids can go on field trips directly to them. And Mm -hmm. uh, we have our museum liaison teaches the kids how to look at objects, how to describe them. Our resident archaeologist constructs these sites for them uh, as stratigraphic uh, or stratified sites with different time periods, objects of different time periods, and goes through a lot of effort to get materials that are representative of the cultures and time periods that they want to to discuss, to teach the kids about, and then gives the kids training on recording 
and digging carefully and stratigraphically and the like. And so, you know, the third graders get this introduction to, uh, to the materials uh, and the methods, not just of how to dig, but also how to think like an archaeologist. And I think that's extremely useful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thinking like an archaeologist, but also, I mean, it's clear that you guys probably teach some pretty solid critical thinking skills, which which really is beneficial to all aspects of your life and being an archaeologist, I think. Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, at the school here, that's the main push is to, to teach critical thinking. Um, but we also it's a big school and it's a very wealthy school. So we have a lot of uh, a lot of resources at hand. Mm-hmm. And when I uh, when I first came up in 98 to look at that sixth grade program, I was absolutely floored because sixth <laughs> graders were using this and running off in all different directions out to the library or to do different things to the objects that they'd find, you know, all planted in the, uh, in the virtual dig beforehand, but the objects that they'd find would spark somebody's interest in arms and armor or somebody else's interest in architecture or, uh, religious symbols or whatever metallurgy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a lot of different things. And so it became a really good way to jump off and explore different topics, uh, very much kid directed too. Uh, you know, fortunately they had a library, they still do that, um, that was full of resources the kids could use to, to look things up. And most of the kids in the sixth grade had been through the third grade program. So if they were to go to say the Met Museum, uh, just a short walk from here, they could go into the Arms and Armor or the ancient Near East galleries or any of the other galleries and uh, and look at objects that uh, that informed what they were doing at school. So you know, it, it was is a good way of bringing a lot of different kinds of thought processes uh, in a very open ended way, but it can also be very very rigorous too. Right. Yeah. Do you know? So you've been there for a long time. Uh, in fact, you've been there. Wow, you've been there long enough to see someone go through the entire like K through twelve program if they did that. Um, yeah, that was a shock the first time it happened <laughs> when I realized I'd seen kindergartners leave. That's <laughs> I awesome. Know I'm getting old. <laughs> um, did you do you know if anybody? Um, I, I know this is just like anecdotal evidence. I don't have any direct proof of this, but it seems to me like um, kids of of relatively wealthy parents, um, which it sounds like, you know, that's the, that's the people that can afford to go to that school generally don't go into the social sciences when they get out of, um, when they get out of high school and go to college because they're not very well paying jobs. They're, uh, I hate to say it, but they tend to be smarter than that (laughs) and, um, and, you know, go into something that pays a little better, but have you been aware of anybody? I mean, you probably lose track of them a little bit once they leave high school, but have you been aware of anybody that went into a a college program focused around either archeology, span anthropology or something like that? Um, off the top of my head, I can only think of one uh, who graduated a few years ago. He was looking at a classics program, but I'm sure there have been mm-hmm. uh, dozens since oh, I've yeah. been here. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, most most tend not to go there. But um, a lot remember the archaeology fondly, and uh, and it becomes a touchstone of future travels um, and avocational interests of theirs. So even if they don't go directly into you know the field, right? It's it, it it's been part of their life and so they they hold on to that i'm a, i'm a firm believer and that's that's one reason why i wanted to start a network uh, when i wanted to do another podcast after the crm archaeology podcast i wanted to start a network so i could bring in other shows and we have these shows now and it's great and i can think of like 10 more that i want to do but that don't necessarily make people archaeologists but they make people think like that and think from a heritage standpoint so you don't have to go into you know, into archaeology. It's great that you guys have the programs that make them think about the past, think about what lessons we can learn from the past, how to interpret it, and and then how to move forward. And even if they don't go into that field, which let's face it, most people are not going to go into that field, uh, it'll still influence their thinking and other things that they do. Maybe some of those kids grew up to be, you know, CEOs of, of companies that are doing big development projects, and they remember back to their, you know, archaeological training at the Dalton School when um, when they're confronted with a situation where they got to run a pipeline through, uh, you know, some Native American grounds or something like that. And that'll come back to them just as a little thing sticking in their mind. <laughs> yeah, some sensitivity to it. Yeah, exactly. They've, uh, they've thought about it in the past. It was part of their upbringing, part of their schooling. Yeah, totally. So, um, well, 
I want to talk about uh, some of the stuff that we're, and we're going to get into this more heavily in, in segment two. Um, but I want to talk about some of the stuff that we're going to cover because uh, you you came with actually a pretty good list of, of topics. And this is why I need to refresh co-hosts every once in a while. I'm glad Chris Sims decided to go because, you know, him and I were having a trouble, a hard time, you know, because we're too close to it. We're having a hard time coming up with more <laughs> topics for the podcast. There's a ton of things out there, but when you're too close to it, you like can't see it. So bringing in a fresh perspective um, and, and somebody that's aware of what we have covered is pretty great. But before we do that, you mentioned that when you were doing uh, archaeology back before you started at the school there, um, that you were kind of on the tech side of things. What was tech like, Jesus, 17 years ago when uh, when you were working in archaeology? Like, what kind of stuff were you working with on on that side? Okay, the uh, the main project that we had was at Masca, um, Bill Fitz and I, he's a European archaeologist, also maybe former or dormant or ex-archaeologist. Mm-hmm. Um he and I were in charge of programming something that we called SiteMap, and it was a suite of programs that we used for uh, for surveying with uh, with total stations. Bill was on the data collection side of it, and I was on the data plotting side of it. So we had you know laptops, uh, power books at the time, I think, um, that we would run Minicad then VectorWorks uh, for the plotting uh, custom program that we wrote on um, Corvallis MC5 data collectors. Mm-hmm. And uh, and basically, we'd set up with these total stations and uh, and map in entire sites or map in uh, objects found in trenches or whatever was necessary for the given site, uh, for the given project. And um, so my part was, you know, I was not just developing it, but I was also getting hired out for a few months of every year to go use this equipment and go use the software and improve it. Uh, and train other people in its use. And um, so the, what's the big change since then? I mean, obviously the internet has gotten much more ubiquitous. So that's that means that we have access to resources uh, when we're in the field much more easily than we used to. Uh, but the biggest change, I think, <laughs> over anything else is, uh, is battery life. Mm-hmm. We used to fight. To keep batteries alive on our on our uh, on our equipment, both the the in the field and uh, and in the lab. Yeah, and uh, and that's not much of an issue anymore. I mean, batteries are always an issue, and I guess right. it depends how long it is since you've uh, been at a wall outlet. But um, but nothing like it was in the uh, in the mid to late nineties when I was really most active. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I carry uh, even. It, it's funny. It's funny batteries because as batteries have have gotten better, the technology has gotten more power hungry. <laughs> so the so the amount of time that they work is actually kind of you know increased slower, I think. But that being said, the ways to charge things have also um, increased. Like uh, solar power is getting more efficient with the little th- roll up solar things you can bring around with you and run in series. Mm-hmm. Um, I carry two. Uh, generally at all times, I've always got one in my backpack, even when I'm just walking around town here, but I've generally got two, uh, 30,000 milliamp zero lemon, um, USB chargers with me that I can plug four USB devices in at any one time. And actually one of the newer ones I have, I can actually charge my new MacBook pro with that because it has a USB C outlet on it. So I can, when my MacBook pro is powered off, I can actually charge it fully once. Um, cause when it's powered on, it draws too much power. So it doesn't work with the battery, but when it's powered off and I just stick in my backpack and plug in, I could charge that thing up completely, uh, with just that one little battery pack and they're not that big. So, um, and then my backpack itself has a 10,000 milliamp battery like built into it. So I've usually got 70,000 milliamps of power <laughs> to charge all my devices. <laughs> so, all right, well, let's go to break real quick and then we'll come back in just 30 seconds and, uh, or so, and, and we'll talk about some of the stuff that we're going to bring up on the next, um, well, probably the, probably take us through the fall, quite frankly. Um, we got a lot of stuff to cover, a lot of stuff we want to cover and we'll get all to that in the, we'll get to all that in the second segment. All right. Interested in archaeology? Want to hear from experts in the field about the latest discoveries and interpretations? Check out the Archaeology Show every other Saturday and let hosts Chris Webster and April Camp Whitaker take you deeper into the story. Check out the Archaeology Show at www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology and subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and the Google Music Store. That's www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology. Now back to the show. 
Okay, we're back, and I'm talking with Paul Zimmerman, brand-new co-host of the Archaeotech podcast, so you'll be hearing a lot more from him in the future. Um, Paul, you know, tell us a little bit more about about why you wanted to become a co-host on the Archaeotech podcast, because you've clearly been thinking about something like this, or at least thinking about what the hell we're not talking about for a long time, and um, because you gave me a list of topics that I want to discuss a little bit that is extensive and well thought out, <laughs> So, which is exactly what I was looking for. So tell us what, what made you um, decide to jump down this crazy rabbit hole. I'm here at the Dalton School. We're doing a lot of work in archaeology. One of the parts that we do, and one of the parts I really enjoy, it's the highlight of my year every year, is the fifth grade studies ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, my background is as a Middle Eastern archaeologist. Uh, that's my PhD. It was in Yemen. My MA was work I did on materials from the site of Ur in Iraq. So when the fifth grade does their Mesopotamia curriculum, they always bring me in to talk about how one digs mud brick. And, uh, and part of this yeah, the whole curriculum culminates in a field trip. We all go down the entire fifth grade and the teachers go down to the University of Pennsylvania Museum. And uh, I always accompany them. And I accompany them because there's in the Ur Gallery there at the museum, a panel that, uh, that credits work I did for my MA. And what that was way back then, it was, uh, this is 1998, was... I went through the old field notes and reconstructed as best I could at the time the uh, the stratigraphy of the royal tombs from that site. And in doing so, I decided that Leonard Woolley, the excavator, had actually made a mistake um, about two of the most famous tombs and that they're actually inverted, <laughs> that the, uh, the sequence of events huh. isn't the way that he says, but actually the opposite. <laughs> and that there's a third tomb that he mixed wow. in with those two. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details of, of what that is right now, <laughs> but, uh, in 1998, that was met with some skepticism. Now it's basically accepted that uh, that my reconstruction is is the correct one. Anyhow, because I have this connection with Penn and with Dalton, I always go down there. And every time I'm down in Philly, I go and I meet up with my old buddy from Masca, Bill Fitz. And one of the topics that we have is, uh, hey, we ought to do a podcast. We keep on talking about archaeological tech. We have got all these ideas, programs we could write and different kinds of systems we could build. And, <laughs> you know, we, we geek out for a bit. And um, the our podcast never ever got off the ground uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, so when you put out the call for a co-host, I thought, well, pff, here's my chance. This is a <laughs> this is a really interesting podcast. Uh, I enjoy the topics that are covered, um, and I think that I have some things to contribute, both the, in the abstract, but then also because so many of the APN podcasts are uh, are heavily CRM based, and I mean, I love what people are doing in CRM, but my background is academic archaeology. And so I thought, mm -hmm. oh, and also the APN is very heavily uh, Americanist, right? So we're doing a lot of stuff in mm -hmm. the Southwest yeah. and uh, things out East here. But uh, but as far as I know, there's pretty much no coverage of the old world, uh, none of um, of uh, of the ancient Near East, which is where I studied. So I thought maybe there might be an interesting contrast between my experience and my background uh, in academic archaeology, in ancient Near Eastern archaeology, with the uh, the materials that you guys have been covering, um, you know, as a counterpoint, um, or as you know, to augment it, uh, you know, just cross pollinate. Uh, mm -hmm. So anyhow, so you put out the call, and uh, you know, I got in touch with you, and I said, "Hey, I'd, I'd like to try this," and then I sent you that brain dump of different topics that had been rattling around <laughs> in my head. I'm sure I could uh, come up with another 20 or so of them, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, it was, uh, it was really easy to just put those ideas out there. The hard work is actually going to be turning those into uh, real topics to discuss, but, um, but it was a lot of the stuff that I've been thinking about for a long time. Well, that's that's great. And you mentioned R and you mentioned R in what, as one of the topics you wanted to discuss. Um, and R, for those who don't know, is a is a it's a programming language. I actually don't know a whole lot about R, and it's sad that I'm saying that because I'll tell you why in a second. But that's a programming language, right? Yeah, it's a programming language for yeah. uh, statistics. 
Right. So we interviewed on episode 40, so 21 episodes ago, um, Ben Marwick, who he talked all about R and, and what he was doing with it. But what he was talking about was um, they actually set up for the last SAAs, the one that was in Vancouver, Society for American Archaeology Conference, a um, it was a workshop for people to learn and use R. And then we had a follow-up which let me just look at my notes here. Um, Ben Marwick. Yeah. Follow up on episode 49. It was an open science, uh, follow up, they called it. So, and that was just talking about, uh, the publication. I think they were trying to get out regarding using R and then the essay workshop. So, so it seems to be an emerging thing, and uh, I wouldn't mind having, because uh, that was Chris Sims and I talking to Ben Marwick, and neither of us knew anything about what the heck he was talking about, and I think he knew that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was interesting asking him questions. So I wouldn't mind having a, an actual follow-up with Ben. Uh, I don't know if Ben listens to this show right now, but or, or just the ones that he's on, because that's what I would do. But um, if he's listening, you know, Ben, we need to have another discussion because now that I have somebody else on that knows, you know, that can actually converse with you intelligently, uh, it'd be interesting to have that kind of discussion. And um, and that's another, like you said, uh, like you said, Paul, that's great to have you on because you have such a, you have a much more... Um, you and I have very different backgrounds. You know, we're we're passionate about about different things in technology, which is fantastic. Chris Sims and I were we had a lot of the similar interests in technology. It was I think it was a lot more hardware focused and different things that we could use and do. And we're both CRM archaeologists, so it was very focused around that. And uh, I guess I guess we were kind of ignoring an entire an entire area of things that we could talk about just because we didn't have experience with it. Um, so that's why this is, this is going to be, um, a great fit. What, uh, one of the things I'm intrigued about by one of the topics you suggested was, uh, small and cheap computers. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I mean, there's been an explosion over the last few years, uh, raspberry Pis, beagle boards, Arduinos. Um, I just bought a chip. Um, I'm not sure why, but it was nine bucks. So I had to get it. Um, <laughs> It's sitting on my desk. I haven't figured out what I'm going to do with it. I use a, a Raspberry <laughs> Pi at home. I keep it online all the time um, because if I ever have to check incoming to uh, to school here, I just remote mm-hmm. out to that and come back in through the uh, through the firewall to see what things look like from the outside world. Um, I think you just completely lost everybody with that one statement. Okay. Um, what? <laughs> well, first, because you're talking to archaeologists here, and we need to remember that. So first, yeah, what are these uh, things? What what is a Raspberry Pi? I mean, I've I've actually seen them. I'm using some of them here at the Reno Collective. They're using them in, in interesting and unique ways. So, what do you? What is a Raspberry Pi exactly? Basically, it's a little solid state board. Um, has USB. Uh, depending on which model, it'll have Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, or uh, Ethernet, or various combinations. They're low powered, low memory. They run a stripped down Linux. Uh, they were originally developed. The Raspberry Pi was really originally developed to be a teaching tool for school kids to learn how to program. Um, but they're really versatile. I mean, they're cheap, so you know nobody's afraid of blowing one up. Um, they uh, they've got a lot of inputs, so you can hook up various kinds of sensors to them. They come again preloaded with Linux uh, if you buy one with the uh, with the OS on it. That um, has Python and Scratch and any of a number of different uh, fairly easy programming languages to start working with. So that they're designed to be a very low barrier to entry um, tinkerers platform. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, BeagleBoard and, uh, and Chip and any of dozens of other ones are, are along a similar vein. And so people have been using them as the guts for robots, um, for monitoring systems, for, jeez, oh, I can't even think off the top of my head what else I've seen, <laughs> but it must be thousands of different uses. And I always think there's got to be some good use for this for archaeologists. I mean, one of the ideas that Bill and I had always tossed around um, was having an on-site database that basically everybody could access. All the all the diggers on a uh, on an excavation could access, and so you know, a little Wi-Fi grid mm-hmm. network and small, cheap, low-powered servers that could handle. You know, taking in the data, serving out a web page, for example, to uh, to load in data from uh, from people's handheld devices. Um, these kinds of things would be perfect for that. Um, and I'd be surprised if somebody hasn't already tried doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, what would be fun? Uh, one thing that would be fun to do is create a segment where 
uh, we spend, you know, 10 minutes at the end of every show or something like that for a certain period of time. Uh, I would love to do some interactive stuff like this. So if we use the Raspberry Pi as an example, we spend a little, we spend an episode talking about what exactly, you know, we really expand on the Raspberry Pi. What are some capabilities? We talk about some examples of how people are using it out in the world. And so so people understand exactly what it's capable of. It sounds like pretty much anything, but just understanding those integrations and how you can work with other stuff. And then, you know, we, we have a we have a call for people saying, um, you know, okay, let's let's have a call out for for things you think this could be handled with archaeology. What can you do in archaeology? with a Raspberry Pi and any combination of things. And then maybe have uh, a few, I don't know, a few episodes where we have like a little workshop at the end, like, oh, here's how you do this with a Raspberry Pi and things like that. And maybe run a contest. Yeah, we could run a contest that happens like over the over four months or something and and the best use of the Raspberry Pi for archaeology, but not just thinking of it, actually doing it. Since these things are actually relatively cheap to do, we teach them how to do some, some minor programming and things like that. Maybe have some website materials available. And then see what people come up with and, uh, you know, maybe give them some APN swag or something like that as a prize at the end. I think that'd be pretty neat. Yeah. One of the topics that I put on that list was uh, was maker culture, um, mm-hmm. and where, how or if even does it intersect with uh, with archaeology uh, and archaeologists. And um, and, you know, one of the big things in maker culture is the make magazine where there are lots of you know, how to guides to build various kinds of contraptions. Uh, something like that would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Get yeah. people uh, on a competition or a seed for, uh, you know, here's what we want to try to do and see who can <laughs> implement it the most efficiently or most interestingly. I would be real interested in that too, because I, I we've interviewed um, Bernard Means on here before, who's, you know, big into uh, 3D scanning. He's got the whole lab at, uh, what is that, Virginia, University of Virginia, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Virginia Virtual Curation Laboratory is what he runs. And uh, at any time you see uh, Bernard at a conference, he's always handing you 3D printed projectile points. It's fantastic. I think I've got like six of them. But um, here at the Reno Collective, in one of our one of the former recording studio rooms, they're actually making into a, a kind of a small, relatively informal maker space. And that was kind of that was kind of born around the fact that we got a guy in here that's now just you know renting desk space like everybody else is, but he has some stuff at his house that he doesn't have room for. And two of the things he didn't have room for were two 3D printers. And I'm like, oh, shit, I wish I had extra 3D printers laying around that I didn't have room for. But anyway, um, he's also got like a laser engraving thing that he's going to bring in. We've got some modifications to make to that room so that so it, you can actually put like a laser cutting t- tool in there, like this, all these ventilation and stuff. But anyway, uh, soon he's going to run a class on the 3D printers, and then you're going to have to take that class here at the Collective to get checked out on it. But I am really excited because I know 3D printing and scanning, people are using that for artifacts and things like that. But I want to know what other kind of stuff we can come up with. What kind of – can we make some tools that don't exist or can we make some some things that don't exist to help us with, um, with doing stuff? Like one of the things – I was actually thinking about because I thought this would be really cool. If you had a 3D printer and they don't take it, it, it the technology for this is going to get a lot quicker. But I was thinking, you know, when we dig a unit in sand, like I remember working on the southeast coast, you dig a unit in sand and you really start got to start shoring up your walls when you get down just, you know, 30, 40 centimeters because when that sand starts to dry out, it starts to cave in. Well, you know, typically we use plywood or something like that to shore up the walls. But sometimes you'll find something when you're digging out a unit and you start pedestaling artifacts and you leave them on these little pedestals. But sometimes you'll you'll dig in and around the artifact first and then you've got these little mini walls that you need to dig around. And if you could just have a 3D printer on site and you could quickly, you know, print out some scaffolding, just a little six by six inch, you know, uh, piece of scaffolding that's maybe three inches high and then drop that down in there around the artifact to protect it. That's something that doesn't exist. You can't go to Home Depot and buy something like that. Yeah. But if you could just print it out right there for pennies and you've already got the designs in there, you just change the size and print it out. I mean, little things like that, you know, where, what can we do with stuff like that to really, I don't know, enhance what we're doing and just think outside the box. That's another, another fun contest we could run, I think. Well, on the uh, pedagogical side here at school last year, they, uh, we used uh, 3D printers for an interesting project. The sixth grade always does, they study ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. And part of that, and this goes back decades, they build Greek temples, models of Greek temples out of cardboard. Uh, and so the nice. 
kids uh, form little groups and they, they study different aspects of the temple. They try to build it to scale. So there's this whole mathematical component. But at the end, they've all built these temples to different scales. So some are big, some are small. They're, they're all over the place. Um, a few years ago, we introduced SketchUp. And so some of the kids were building oh, yeah. their models of the temple in SketchUp. And then they could put a little person there. This last year, um, and this isn't my project. I was involved in it, but um, but it wasn't my my idea to start with. Uh, they they were using SketchUp and uh, a 3D printer to print everything um, to print. Excuse me, to print columns from the temples to a standard scale. Hmm. So that way, they could line up all the all these uh, these columns from different temples in the ancient Greek world uh, and show then proportionally. You know. Some are some of the columns were about eighteen inches tall, and some are just about two or three inches tall. So it gives you a sense of proportion that we didn't have with any of the other models, with either the SketchUp only models or with the old paper and cardboard models. So that was uh, yeah. that was a, an interesting way to actually use the tech to uh, to show kids to show uh, to showcase kids' work and uh, to give them another sense of the mathematics and scale. And uh, and my component of it was I was showing the uh the comp sci teacher and the uh, the preceptor who are working on it uh who are leading the project uh i was showing them how columns actually are made out of drums and with the the keyhole in the middle to line them up so they they replicated <laughs> that uh, by printing out little sections of the columns that they could then stack together instead of trying to print out one big column in the end they did that's both, awesome but um but you know it was it was a learning experience for everybody and uh, and it was a pretty successful one i think god that's so cool and uh, i'm really happy that things like 3d printers and stuff like that are coming way down in price um and increasing in functionality i mean you can get a standard 3d printer that it might only do one color at a time but you can get a six by six by six inch block out of it and i mean those are coming down under 300 dollars now so these these schools that aren't the Dalton School, which are most of them, <laughs> can, can start to afford this kind of stuff and bring these things in. Because I think in 2017, I mean, I haven't been in a school in a long time and I have kids, but I think most schools probably have access to at least some computers these days. I mean, computers are fairly ubiquitous, even in, in poor, disadvantaged school districts, because um, you can get computers for, for practically nothing, um, and especially used computers. Um, but start adding 3d printers and stuff like that and man the access to these things is just really increasing so that's that's good to hear yeah it's growing quickly it's nice to see what these younger minds can come up with all right well um i'm interested to see and excited to see what else we come up with and uh what kind of topics we're going to have coming up in the future which um which paul and i are going to spend a minute talking about after we're done with this recording so we can figure out what the next archaeotech podcast is going to be <laughs> so um get some things scheduled so uh keep an eye on this space and, and keep an eye on the archaeotech podcast and um and subscribe if you happen to find this and you and you you haven't subscribed so it can be delivered right to you uh and as I mentioned in the beginning, I'm just promoting this because it's it's new and fun and interesting for us. Check out the uh, You Call This Archaeology live show at 3 p.m. Pacific time on facebook.com forward slash arcpodnet uh, or just search Archaeology Podcast Network on Facebook. And once you like the page, it should send you a notification that we've gone live. And we're trying to go live about five minutes before three. So people have time to join in. And then we and then we cut it live right at three. So we're going to break right now and come back with our quick um, app of the day segment. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right, so we are back for our app of the day segment, Paul's first app of the day segment. And uh, I'm going to go first since uh, since Paul's new at this and, and we'll... Um uh, I'll, I'll break the ice on this. So what I'm going to talk about might sound shocking. Um, I'm going to talk about Apple Maps. And I'm only talking about it because I think that most people probably don't use it uh, because it's it's it used to be and kind of still is a little horrific. Um, I use Waze typically when I'm doing, you know, like car navigation and stuff like that. But 
if you're in the Apple ecosystem, maybe you have an Apple Watch or something like that, uh, then it's even better. But Apple Maps has made quite a few changes, and that's why I wanted to talk about it. And let me just pull up my, my notes here real quick. I happened to accidentally use it just the other day because it, it integrates so heavily with everything because it is Apple. Uh, somebody sent me a an address. I was actually, we were bouncing from address to address in Los Angeles on, on Friday night. And it was... Um, they sent me the address and when you click on it, I didn't mean to click on it. I meant to like long press on it and copy the address and then bring it into ways. But it just, I clicked on it accidentally or tapped on it and it just opened Apple maps. So I was like, all right, I don't have time to mess with this. So I just used it. And it's, it's gone through a lot of changes now, just for frame of reference, I'm on iOS 10 point, whatever the latest one is and running an iPhone seven plus. So it's the latest iPhone with the latest software. So keep that in mind. If you are back a few generations on the iPhone or the software, you might not have all these features that I'm talking about. So, uh, one of the things though, that, um, that this does is it's now got, when you're lands in landscape view, it's got some really good information about your trip um, that's really accurate. But, you know, that's just cosmetic kind of stuff. One of the things I really wanted to talk about that I was actually super surprised with, and, it's a, and I, I've used Apple Maps just off and on when I do accidentally click on it, so I've seen some of these things. But one of the things in the last week that I really noticed was it was doing some really good... Um, rerouting around like accidents and traffic and stuff. Now, there's no way to enter that stuff in like you can with Waze, so I'm not exactly sure where it's pulling that information from or when it decides to do that rerouting, but I've never seen it do that before. I've seen it reroute when there's like a road closed or something like that, but um, when, but not for, for accidents. And, uh, I'm just used to use, that's why I use Waze because if there's traffic or something, you know, road construction or whatever, uh, enough people report that on Waze and then they'll just route you around it if they can. Um, out here in Nevada, that's almost never an option, which kind of sucks because there's only one way to get anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, unless I want to go off road or something like that, but uh, the directions are really good. It, it's it's it hasn't led me astray. Um, it, it's also like I mentioned, <laughs> like I mentioned with Apple Watch, it's got amazing integration with the Apple Watch. Um, it 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 automatically comes up on the watch, and if I'm if I'm doing something else on the watch, and then I put my hand down and I bring it back up, it's back on the map. And it um, it taps at you slowly when you're coming up to a turn, and then we'll just the tapping gets faster as you get closer to your turn, which is pretty cool. Um, I have I do know that some of the um, Android navigation systems and some of the bigger Android watches I can't remember I think is the Gear the Gear Two or something like that maybe that's from Samsung, mm-hmm. um, but it still runs Android. But anyway, it's a bigger thing and it taps left or right on the left or right side of the watch to let you know you're turning left or right, which is kind of cool. The Apple Watch is a little too small for that. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to tell what's left and what's right. But uh, yeah, just little things like that. And then another thing I noticed um, because I was I was walking somewhere and I just pulled up my I pulled up my watch and I, I said the Hey Siri thing. Um, I'm not going to keep going with that because I just activated a whole bunch of, of iPhones. But I said I said that and I said, take me home. And that's just one way you can just navigate to home. And it instantly went to driving directions on my watch and I was walking, you know, it was like two miles from home and I was walking and I was like, well, that's not handy. It wants me to go this way. So I just went, started walking the direction I knew I should go if I was actually walking, not driving. And it instantly switched after, I don't know, was it maybe after 30 seconds of just walking it, it sensed my speed and sensed that I was going a different route. So not only did it reroute me to join up with the route that I was taking, but it switched to walking directions and made a more efficient walking route. That was really cool. That's handy. I haven't seen that before. Yeah, no, here in Manhattan, we have, um, you know, we, we take public transportation if we're not walking, uh, don't mm-hmm. drive a whole lot. And always it comes up, you know, if I look for directions, it comes up immediately with the uh, the driving directions. I use Apple Maps <laughs> preferentially, uh, but yeah. I always have to switch it over to transit. I've never sat around and see what happens if I switch it to walking because I was just, I'm so used to popping in there to tell it that I don't want to drive. Mm-hmm. So I should try that sometime. Yeah, that'd be that'd be interesting. I, I I have a hard time believing it would switch in or out of transit because that's a really specific thing. Right, but, right, but for the walking, um, if but for walking, yeah. And one thing I haven't seen though is if it comes up with walking directions. And I think this is true because I, I want to say that I did it. But if you actually enter in walking directions, but then you start driving and you're doing 30 miles an hour, it switches to driving directions, um, which would make sense if it can switch yeah, from driving to walking. It should be able to switch from walking to driving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but I haven't actually tested that. And it might just be because I started the navigation on the Apple Watch. I'm not really sure there too. Apple does weird things with that. Like, because it's really, it's really difficult when you're in the, if you start 
um, by tapping on the Apple Watch with the Apple Maps, like if you're entering stuff in manually. If you use Siri to enter stuff in, then it just picks a route for you and you go. It's a little bit under-featured because you're working with the watch, not the full phone. When you're on the phone, I don't know how much switching it'll do because you see right down on the bottom of the directions there, you can switch between walking, transit, mm-hmm. and bicycle, and you know driving. So maybe because that's hard to switch on the watch, it tries to figure it out for you. Or I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to look at it. So do a little more testing. Those are just some of the things I noticed that it was doing, though. Yeah, I've never been patient enough to see it do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I was, I don't know why, I think I was, I don't know what I was doing that I just let it go. Like, I was like, all right, it'll figure it out. I think it was just rerouting because it was trying to, because it was driving directions. I think the thing was, it had me going the opposite direction I wanted to go because I started out walking on a one-way street and I was walking against the one-way street because you can do that on a one-way. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and I think that's when it switched. So maybe maybe it was tied to being on a one-way street too. I have no idea. Who knows? Who knows what Apple is in Apple's little brain pan? I've tried to look it up and nobody seems to have written anything solid about this. No, Apple's so always really pretty stingy about their, uh, their, their release <laughs> notes too. So <laughs> trying to figure out what yeah, they fixed exactly. changed is, uh, is anybody's guess. People have to black box it. That's right. That's right. You know, and while we're talking about this, this episode is going is releasing as you're as you're listening to it. It's released prior to the Apple Fall keynote. And as everybody knows, I'm an Apple fanboy, and uh, I will be watching the keynote. It's on September 12th at. Uh, they didn't release the time, but they're always at 10 a.m. Pacific time. So I'll be watching that and probably taking some notes and trying to figure out what some of the new stuff is either going to do do good for or harm what we're doing currently for archaeology because they do take away features as well, and. Um, so keep an, keep an eye out for an episode in late late September where we go over some of the stuff from the Apple keynote. So um, if you don't if you're not a, a, a geek like a geek like us and, and are going to watch that and, and understand it, <laughs> you don't have to because we'll 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 do it for you and then come out with the highlights. Yeah, I'm going to miss it. That's the second day of school, so um, I'm going to be busy with school stuff. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. So. All right, so Paul, you've got an app you want to talk about. Why don't you go ahead? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, when you asked the app of the day, the first thing that jumped to my mind was Notability. And then I said, oh, I don't know. I haven't used it in a long time. So I take what I have to say with a grain of salt. There may be new features that have been added. I used to use it fairly heavily up until about a year ago for note-taking. Um, and so it's a note-taking app. Uh, you can bring in photographs. You can bring in, for example, a PDF as a background to fill out forms. You can, uh, it'll, handwriting, which is what initially interested me with it with the iPad Um, but we were using it here at school as well in that third grade archaeology program Uh, they took a number of paper forms that the kids used to use and they converted them into notability so the kids could then take their notes directly in uh, in the iPad and they could make uh, they could use multiple different kinds of media so they could write they could type they could record their voices they could take photographs or videos they could do a drawing they could do a drawing on paper and take a photograph of that to bring it in to discuss the uh, the objects that they were finding as they were doing the dig. And then they had all that material there in one spot um, on their iPads that they could then convert very easily uh, for presentations that they would give to their classmates. Um, now, you know, hmm. I think we're both in the same boat that we like really structured data, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is not that. <laughs> <laughs> but that said, if, um, you know, the ability to bring multiple media into uh, into a recording platform easily is uh, is is still a step in the right direction, I think, uh, you know, versus notebooks where you're, you know, back in the day, we used to have to take Polaroids if we wanted a picture in our notebook um, or else wait for the week until somebody came back from the, uh, from the photo lab, having all the, uh, the materials there in one place, really easily accessible, organized on something like notability, where we can bring in a paper form as a background and fill it out as if it were a paper form is still, I think a, a step in the right direction. So, um, so if you're not ready to really take the plunge to, uh, to a new data collection platform, you might want to take a look at this. So at least you can stop carrying around reams of paper when you uh, do your field work. Yeah. And just so you guys know, it's, uh, it's currently $9 and 99 cents in the app store, but it is a universal app. So it'll work on your, uh, on your tablet and your smartphone. Yeah. And it syncs up to Dropbox. Uh, so it'll, <laughs> yeah. you save something, it'll show up on all your devices and you've got that Dropbox backup, which is, um, you know, very important, I think. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say that too. It, it, it probably syncs. Um, I'm trying to look at their, their feature set here. It more than likely syncs through iCloud as well. So yeah, it says iCloud sync yeah. as well. So if you didn't have a Dropbox account and didn't want to get one, it will sync through iCloud, which if you're on an Apple device, you have an iCloud account, even if you don't know it, you had a, you can use iCloud drive. So, um, and unfortunately this isn't available for Android. And I actually looked up an article on, um, apps like Notability for Android and the only app mentioned is Supernote and somebody mentioned that no it doesn't do everything you need it to do but that's an old this is an old post so but if anybody wants to to write in or comment on this post with their alternatives that they use for Android systems for taking notes and, and doing similar things like that that'll be fantastic you know wherever you're, wherever you're listening to this from or saw this link on we post on Facebook in multiple groups and uh, and on Twitter and of course on the Archaeology Podcast Network uh, page this will be for slash archaeotech uh, forward slash 61. So wherever you want to comment, go ahead. Um, so other people listening to this can see what other apps are available out there. Um, unfortunately, I found uh, I found another Apple user for a co-host for the show. Yeah, <laughs> We're going to have to bring on a, a token Android guy yeah, or, or woman. to are our Macs and, uh, and iOS. Uh, but here at school, right. you know, especially with the infrastructure, we use a lot of you know, Windows servers, Linux servers all yeah. over the place. And then we won't even get into the networking hardware, but, uh, but yeah, for personally, <laughs> my, my own use, <laughs> I've been Mac yeah, for, uh, yeah. since 87. <laughs> nice. Nice. That's awesome. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. Um, I kind of did the goodbye in the last segment, but, uh, cause I wasn't sure if we were going to do this, but we did. So yeah, thanks a lot. And hopefully we're going to have some some really cool stuff coming out in the next uh, few months and uh, keep an eye on that. And yeah, as, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. And as always comment wherever you saw this again too, or send me an email at Chris at archaeology podcast with, with topic suggestions. If there's something you want to know about, let us find somebody to interview. That's an expert in that subject and we'll, uh, we'll have a good conversation about it. So, all right. Thanks Paul. Thank you. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.